The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is your host, Claudia Shamba, with Ask a Leader. We'll be right back with our show in just a bit, okay? Well, ladies and gentlemen, 100 years ago, Californian women put the sixth star on the suffrage flag of the Union on the way toward adoption of the 19th Amendment, later ratified when Tennessee made it all the way, uh, made it all official on August 24th, 1919. That's the first part of the program. The second part, we'll hear Elle Beyer of Peace Love Swap, who's working town by town, city by city to change the way we do business. Along the way, she has an elegant solution to what some of you can do for Halloween. Is it too soon to mention Halloween? We'll be right back after a brief one. This Saturday, Californians and who knows, maybe which others will congregate in Sacramento to celebrate a dynamic movement, remember those in Sacramento folks, that succeeded in women's, winning women's right to vote in this state. That's right, women's suffrage in California celebrates its centennial on this upcoming weekend in Sacramento. Kimberly Salter, my first guest, is co-chair of the California Women's Suffrage Centennial. She's been a board member of many state and local NOW boards over the decade. She's a therapist. She's co-founded Santiago Estrada and Associates, an employee assistance records and management consulting firm. She counsels, conducts professional lectures and workshops, and I've seen her, dare say, do some amazing historical art performance. Uh, she... Uh, Let's see, along the, the way, she's been doing all of these things. Um, then the other guest for this portion of the show is Robert Cooney, who wrote Winning the Vote, Triumph of the Women's Suffrage Movement, published by American Graphic Press in 2005. The book was named one of the five best on the subject by the Wall Street Journal, the only title published in the 21st century and the only one by a man on the list. Robert Mooney's book inspired the U.S. Department of State to issue a poster series on the women's suffrage movement for use abroad. Are you listening, Cairo, Tripoli, Damascus, Ramallah? Maybe Tehran, I should say, too. Robert Cooney joins us from Half Moon Bay and Kimberly Salter right here in Orange County. Welcome, Kimberly Salter and Robert Cooney, to the show. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you, Claudia. Glad you're both with us today. Thanks for carving out some special time to be on Ask a Leader. Well, the history of the suffrage movement in California, where there was many interesting demographics going on around the state. Then, I want everybody to imagine, that was when San Francisco was the population center. Um, the uh, We had different parties that you wouldn't imagine were... Uh, scheming to make sure this never happened in this state and among others. And so what happened in, um, we want to, let's talk first with Robert about um, those two close elections in California. First, that one in 1896, then the one in 1911. They were super close. They were amazing, Claudia, and I think you're right. It was really a rough and tumble time back in 100 years ago and earlier in California. 
So when women stood up and said, we demand the same rights as men, there was a lot of skepticism and, and, as you say, opposition. And a lot of the opposition was in the cities. And as you were mentioning, the largest city was San Francisco, and the Bay Area was really the center of population after the 49ers came out and the California began to develop. So suffragists saw this as a good possibility for uh, a good possibility for women winning the road, vote here. And so in 1896, they formed a campaign to try to get the voters to approve women's suffrage on the ballot. But there was such strong opposition that women didn't have much of a chance, really, and they lost by 55%. So it took them a while to regroup, and that's what we're celebrating this year. It was the 100th anniversary of when they got on the ballot again in 1911, and they were actually finally able to convince just enough male voters in California to pass equal rights for women. And I, I want to find out now, we're, there's a lot to cover with, there were a, a number of demographics. So when the Chinese-American women and the Hispanic-American women uh, were uh, first voting then after 1911, uh, was this the first time that also Asian-Americans were enfranchised to vote? Kim, do you want to speak to that at all? Uh, no, I was hoping you had the facts on that, Bob. <laughs> well, all well, right. My understanding is that there was a lot of prejudice, you know, that continued on after the election. So I don't know about Asian women. If you're a native-born Asian woman, you had the right to vote. But I know that uh, there was ongoing discrimination, although officially all the women could vote who were naturalized citizens. So you had an active black suffrage movement throughout California. There were black mm-hmm. women's clubs up and down the state. And I want to say... a lot of working-class women who were very involved in the struggle in 1911 also. I want right. to plug for Robert Mooney with his book on women's suffrage in the country. You've done a lovely job of giving us graphics and uh, different layouts, w- work that the women did to promote the whole movement, and representing lots of dynamic Amer- African-American and uh, um, women... Uh, bills of um, bills of what do we call them fair that showed uh, what kind how appeals were made in different languages around it was phenomenal uh, really your was, effort you know and they had a their work was cut out for them the women really wanted equal rights but they weren't going to go to war like men usually do for equal rights but that meant that each of the states was basically a battleground and you can't change the constitution in the United States without getting the support of enough states to approve it. So that's where California came in. It was a very important state for women to win the right to vote in. The very more important. states that women could vote in, the, long, the more political power they had in Washington. And it was that process of winning state by state that eventually led to the 19th Amendment of the Constitution in 1920. Right. That's And, and Tennessee got to cap that off later. But um, so we have here... Um, Claudia, can I just... Oh, Kimberly, thing? sign as in. I'm, as I'm actually reading the proposition that was on the ballot in please. 1911. Oh, do, please. Uh, It said, this is what we changed it to read, every native citizen of the United States, every person who shall have acquired the right of citizenship under or by virtue of the Treaty of Quartero, and every naturalized citizen thereof, who shall have become such 90 days prior to any election of the age of 21 years, who shall have been resident of the state one year preceding the election, and of the county in which he or she claims his or her vote 90 days, and in the election precinct, 30 days, shall be entitled to vote. Now, here's the exceptions. No native of China, no idiot, no insane person, no person convicted of any infamous crime, no person hereafter convicted of the embezzlement or misappropriation of public money, and no person who shall not be able to read the Constitution in the English language and write his or her name shall ever exercise the privileges of an elector in this state. And uh, was that like a committee uh, job there? Does anybody know how to answer? (laughs) This was actually uh, written up as a Senate constitutional amendment number eight, and then it was put on the ballot as proposition number four. My goodness. So um, now we know that... um, there were a number of organizations, so perhaps each one of them, that I want to mention them all, uh, that were a large part responsible for this success uh, of women's suffrage in California. The California Equal Suffrage Association, Women's Suffrage Party, Wage Earners League, that was headed up by Maud Younger, and the College 
Equal Suffrage League, and then finally um, founded by John Hyde Braley, who who knows if he was, had something to do with the language you just mentioned, Kimberly, uh, the Southern California Political Equality League. All of them made this possible. So um, I don't. You want to talk a bit about what Maude Younger? I don't know if she drafted some of this or if this is just what the the only way the state assembly and state senate could get the language out. But let's Kimberly maybe tell us and and Robert join in on what Maude Younger's role was for California. Well, Maude actually came from a very wealthy family, and she didn't need to work. But her passion and her heart went out to unions. It went out to working women who were not. Um, being treated fairly, uh, not just equal pay, but who also were forced to work longer days. And sometimes we forget that on the very same day we won the right to vote in California, we won the eight-hour working day for women. She was so the early... Maude Younger really was the forerunner for women in labor uh, in this whole campaign. I mean, she reminds me her work in what uh, Robert Cooney's book was covering, that sort of the early day, a century before Barbara Ehrenreich, when she, Barbara Ehrenreich went behind the waitressing um, yes. screen to see how workers were being treated. That's a good Very comparison. So. That struck me, too, that uh, Maude Younger, 100 years ago, sort of went undercover and experienced life as a, as a waitress and tried to unionize and wrote about it in a magazine article that was very influential at the time. So your history repeats itself in a bit. Okay. But also, Maude Younger was an important Californian who went to Washington to help all the women in the country win the vote. And that was one of the tendencies after California women won in 1911, that some of the really talented women who were active here went off to other states and helped women in those states win the vote, or went to Washington, D.C. and helped lobby and work towards passage of the 19th Amendment. And Maude Younger was the lead for the National Women's Party in terms of lobbying the Congress and both houses of Congress. Well, do you want to talk about that cliffhanger uh, leading up to October 2nd, 1911? Either one of you, because it, was, it wasn't certain, and uh, it caught a lot of people off guard on the other end. But let's talk about on the front end going into October 10th. Well, I think what people need to picture back there is, first of all, we had to convince men to give us the vote. So the women would hold what they called pink teas, and they would sit around their kitchen tables and their dining room tables, and they would drink pink lemonade and tea, and they would plot. And no one thought they were doing anything serious because they were just having tea. So they were having their talks. They were actually putting together flyers and pamphlets they could hand out. And then they literally went door to door, church to church, school to school, person to person. And that's how they convinced people Talk your father, talk your husband, talk your brother, talk your friend into giving women the vote. So it's very much a grassroots uh, campaign and very much just kind of friendly. This is what's going to be best for everybody. You know, women are going to take into account all the different uh, areas as we do more holistically. We're going to look at health care and child care and uh, you know, the working uh, day for women. And so it wasn't a, an angry, in-your-face kind of battle. It was much more genteel. calm and genteel, exactly, and just kind of, you know, person to person, church to church, school to school, getting everybody to hop on board and uh, do the right thing, if you will. Well, to look at uh, how Robert Cooney has uh laid out so beautifully, as I've mentioned again, the, the graphics and the, the, the content in the book on women's suffrage, that it was a formidable group of women. And I guess they shuffled around uh, from state to state. You know, there were five states prior to California that adopted mm -hmm. the, uh, not, that ratified what became the 19th Amendment. But it's, it's not, this pink tea situation and this gentility is only a veneer for real persistence in these invigorated leaders all around the country, no? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, very Claudia. much so. And the other thing in California were... that we did ahead of the curve is uh, cars were coming in back then. So women would literally stand on the running boards of cars and give talks out on the farms and the ranches and in the valleys, because that's really where the votes came in, was from the the countryside, if you will, Excellent. not the cities, as Robert has pointed out. I'm glad you mentioned that. That that was what surprised me. It was the rural demographic that broke this tie. It offset what San Francisco, San Francisco was not going for suffrage then. No, neither was Oakland. All right. <laughs> Things sort of changed over the times. You were saying, Robert well, and Cooney? It was the bars and the saloons, that was a strong influence to male voters in the cities, I think. And they're under the thumb sometimes of their employers. 
So uh, the suffragists knew from experience that the cities were going to rise up and be organized and money was going to be spent by opponents to try to defeat this measure within the cities. So they still worked in the cities to try to get the measure passed, but as uh, Kimberly was saying, they paid a lot of attention to the outlying districts, the smaller country areas. They uh, supplied the newspapers there for for years with material about women's suffrage, and often the small-town newspapers just reprinted what the suffragists sent them. So over time, they educated the rural populations. And a lot of the farmers and the ranchers felt um, differently, I think, than the East Coast people because they worked side-by-side with their wives and and their children, and they didn't ah. any real reason not to allow women to have the same rights as men. I just want to let those of you guests who've just joined us, we're talking to Kimberly Salter, co-chair of the California Women's Suffrage Centennial, and Robert Cooney, author of Winning the Vote, Triumph of the Women's Suffrage Movement. I mean, that's an amazing effort to work at a much more sort of atomized demographic and a density of population in the rural areas, that kind of vigor to to rally them as opposed to an easy-to-hit urban area to support women's suffrage. They were very well, I don't know that they saw Go ahead, Robert. Well, I was going to say they were very uh, sophisticated strategically, and mm-hmm. this is what su- <clears throat> sort of surprised me and was remarkable about this campaign, because even today, if we were to run a statewide uh, effort to get a proposition passed, you can understand how difficult and huge that, that effort would be. So here we're talking about 100 years ago by women who didn't have much political experience, didn't have much money, and didn't have a whole lot of standing in the communities as a rule. So it was a totally uphill battle the whole time, and it was these key strategies they came up with and the talent of certain organizers and women who were very good at doing this kind of work, who would have been in politics, I think, had they not been um, ostracized. Um, That's what helped this movement win in 1911. Kimberly? Yes, I think uh, it's, for me, what's really key is that we won it so closely. You hear people all the time, or I hear people say, my vote doesn't count, my vote doesn't count. And if people had believed that back in 1911, women would not have won the vote. We won the vote by less than one vote per precinct in the state. So it was less than 4,000 votes that women won the vote by. So to say my vote doesn't count, knowing our history as I do, that's not a truism. Excellent. And I just wanted for anybody who hasn't had a chance to pick up Robert Cooney's book, and I, I recommend this book for every single school library, every single coffee table, every single uh, political salon. I mean it. I'm, this is not me shilling. This is me endorsing a, a vinyl product. And the vote in 1911 in Sacramento on October 10th was Follow this, 125,037 votes for suffrage, 1,021 excuse me, 121,450 against. So it's it was super close, uh, as Robert documented and Kimberly weighs in with today. Well, after that outcome, the opposition to suffrage, suffrage was shocked, and they it sort of shook them into a different kind of action. So it took a little, uh, it took a little more effort to get more states on board with the suffrage movement. Was Did it not, Robert Cooney? It took a lot more effort after that. Washington State passed the... Uh amended in 1910, and California followed in 1911. So then there were six states all in the West that where women could vote. And so the people who were uh, concerned about that, particularly in the uh, um, saloon and liquor industries, but also in different businesses who were afraid of change, um, they mobilized. They hired their own lobbyists and organized, linked women's suffrage to prohibition. So they said, if women get the vote, we're going to have prohibition, and it could put, put a lot of men out of work. So that was one of their strongest arguments as they went out to the states in the Midwest, saying suffrage is, you know, is not the, the reform that it's pretended to be, and it's going to cause a lot more trouble than it's going to cause progress. And they came up with stronger arguments and a lot more funding so that they could oppose the measure when it appeared on other states' ballots. But the suffragists also got very sophisticated, and over the next several years, there were seven contests in different states, and suffragists would win one by one. They, they won state by state, and they won three of those contests in 1912, and they won another two in 1914. So there would continue to be progress, and California was seen as just a critical impetus showing women how they could do innovative campaigns and also sort of keep the opposition at bay. And didn't the uh, World War I effort put some of this movement uh, to the side, make it um, 
so that um, there was a sort of a mobilization to support the troops in Europe. Definitely. And uh, women had to struggle to keep their message in front of people. And during the Civil War, the women's suffrage movement was put aside so that the war was fought, and then the women were ignored afterwards. And they learned a lesson from that. So okay. During World War I, the message of the suffragists was, we're, we're going to support the country totally, even though we don't have equal rights, but we're going to continue to work for our own rights, because what's the point of working for democracy abroad when there isn't democracy at home? Mm-hmm. And this movement um, was successful in really rallying many different uh, political, political, a broader practice of, let's say, democracy in American society. And we've talked a little bit about uh, the breakdown of, um, uh, I mean, all the exemptions. Do those exemptions, though, follow in along with uh, the uh, 19th Amendment? Or the 19th Amendment should have been more about equal coverage uh, for equal protection for all voters that were enfranchised, that were uh, citizens of the United States, no? Yes, I don't believe you'll find the wording, no idiot, no native of China, no insane person. I don't believe you find that wording in the 19th Amendment. And did you um, find out what the reference to idiot was all about? No. And the wording came from, I mean, like I said, this was a Senate resolution. So if you can imagine, it was the Senate that was debating and arguing how to word this amendment to put it onto the ballot. Yes, Robert? Cooney? In the old days, they would link, uh, women would make this... uh, case that uh, the only people who can't vote are uh, criminals, the insane, idiots, and women. So they would say, here's how you're treating the women of America, because these are the categories you're putting us with. In that order, so I think too. they're hearkening back to that kind of language that uh, mm-hmm. it may have been endorsed at some point in the elections in the early days, but that's how women were cast in the roles of, you know, in the company of idiots and the insane and the imprisoned and so forth. Well, uh, instead of moving away from that kind of a frame of reference, we've mentioned Maud Younger. Uh, are there other formidable women either one of you would like to single out for our listeners to bone up on and be more literate about? Give them their due. I certainly do. I mean, there were several. The woman who led the, the state one was called Elizabeth Lowe Watson, and she was a, a, a minister, actually, and she was known as the general. And she was a suffragist who had worked with Susan B. Anthony at the first California election in 1896. And then she became head of the statewide organization in 1911. So she's an example of women who were politically astute and who were dedicated to the cause and stuck with it for decade after decade. And I think you'd find several women, Maud Younger being another. Ellen Clark Sargent was a popular um, suffragist in California, and she was married to the man who wrote the words, uh, the senator who wrote the words for the 19th Amendment. Ah. And I'd just speak up for John Hyde Braley also, who was yes. a man in California, in Southern California, a businessman in his 70s, who said, who took it on himself to organize a suffrage, uh, equal suffrage uh, organization, because he said the men are the ones who are going to have to vote for this, so it's the men who really should decide and, and be informed and organize and take leadership in it. So that was a wonderful example of California's uniqueness in terms of men also standing up and taking responsibility for equal rights for women. And Kimberly, you, Salter, you may have some favorites, and maybe are yes, you going to be doing got, any performance uh, artistry? We've got Clara Shortridge Foltz, uh, who wanted to be a lawyer, and back then women were not allowed to be to lo- lawyers or go to law school, and so she fought her way through that um, to become a lawyer. She was the um, she was in uh, started the Los Angeles Votes for Women Club, and so she fought for over thirty years for women's legal rights and. Um, very much a, a go-getter in that, those early days, as was Selena Solomons, uh, another suffragist who worked tirelessly uh, both in the 1896 and the 1911 campaign. Wow. Think of that. And so, yeah, she there was important because she was then. one of the few people who actually wrote about the campaign. And mm-hmm. it, except for women like her, Selena Solomons wrote How We Won the Vote in California, a true story of the campaign for 11, 1911. Have we not that kind of documentation from the people who were involved, we probably wouldn't know much about this entire episode in our history. Boy, and this enfranchised half the people in our country. In California, it was half the people in the state. I mean, these are really remarkable steps towards making the United States a more democratic world. So uh, these kind of women who wrote about it and passed on the lessons of that campaign were really, really important. And her book is available online from some of the places. And there are also other 
information sources online, especially at the National Women's History Project. Exactly. National Women's History Project, that's a website to go to. We also want people to know that to uh, follow, we, we want to talk about the centennial, to follow the centennial and uh, its developments that are happening in Sacramento, you follow with wwwc 8 2011centennial.com. And uh, I want it so fast forward to this uh, upcoming weekend uh, with the uh, events that are planned. Uh, that's one way I've just given you the website where people can follow and join along. So, um, what are some of the activities that both of you might be partaking in? And I want to know will Deborah Bowen, our Secretary of State, the woman in charge of voting, is she's going to be there along with everybody yes, else? Yes, she will. Uh, Deborah Bowen will actually be greeting uh, and speaking to the men in the audience on Sunday, encouraging them to go out and vote on Monday so that women may win this vote. Um, and she will also be hosting our reception on Monday evening. Sunday we have a theater going on at Crest Theater in Sacramento. We will be uh, premiering the brand-new film by Martha Wheelock called California Women Win the Vote, Woo. and also a documentary by Louise Vance called Seneca Falls, which is also on the national vote. Right. And the group We Did It For You will be performing. So that will all be going on Sunday afternoon at Crest Theater. And then Monday we start bright and early, 9.30 in the morning, at the California Museum, which is Two and, a, two and a half blocks from the Capitol. We're encouraging people to dress in uh, period attire, or at the very least in white with the suffrage colors of purple and yellow accessories. We will stroll over to the Capitol, where we will be welcomed by uh, the Senate Chair, Daryl Steinberg, and we will go in, we will listen to suffragists, we will hear original suffrage songs from 1911, we will have a reading of the proposition and the pros and cons of it. We will have uh, authors. Uh, Robert Cooney is going to be there with his book, as is... Bring lots of um, copies, Robert. And a couple other authors, and then we have a reception that evening. So there's stuff going on all day long for all ages, for men and women, grandparents, grandkids. Um, We're hoping to have a huge celebration. Yes, Robert Cooney? And this is um, October 10th we're talking about, which is Monday, which is also uh, Columbus Day. Uh So uh, it's a long weekend for some people. This is Sacramento on Sunday and Monday, but I would encourage people to look around wherever they are because there are celebrations throughout the state organized by the American Association of University Women, the League of Women Voters, the YWCA, uh, many other groups that have been um, grown out of actually the suffrage movement, like the League of Women Voters came directly out of the suffragists. So a lot of these groups in San Diego and San Francisco, Sacramento, and throughout the state are planning their own celebrations. So if you can't make it to Sacramento, you might look around and, and see what might be happening nearby. That's and a, a good lot point. of those are listed on the Centennial website. Okay, so I'm going to remind people, and we'll, it will be on the podcast, which I hope to get up here sooner than later so people can, uh, so there's no excuse not to be a part of this wonderful celebration, www.ca. 2011centennial.com. And um, I wanted um, to uh, uh, mention, um, well, we wanted a word or two about enfranchisement in our day. Kimberly Salter, if you could talk to the participation of women on the voting side and on the office holding side in 2011, 100 years later. Well, I think that it's important to, to really look at what is the percentage of female voters in the state of California? We certainly do not hold any kind of representation at the state level. We have yet to have a woman governor, a woman lieutenant governor. Um, so I think even though, yes, we have two women senators, wonderful in Washington, uh, but we really don't have enough w- women represented at the table. I think that it's imperative not only that women vote, but that women get involved, that women consider running, whether it's school board or city council or um, school boards, uh, county districts. Uh, You know, there's so many opportunities for women these days, and I would like to see them participate more in the discussion. And I think a a read of Robert Cooney's book gives us a very invigorating uh, look at leadership with its very selfless face that these persistent women kept up uh, in this uh, whole effort for women's suffrage. And I think it, it remind us of what, what's been done, what too many women, I think, take for granted, not to mention too many men, and uh, what 
you know, we can how we carry on a simple 100 years later and pick up where they left off with all of that vigor. And um, Ro- yes, Robert Cooney. Well, that was my my goal in putting this book out. This this book, Winning the Vote, has a, almost a thousand photographs in it and profiles and pictures of 75 specific women suffragists. So what I wanted to do was inspire people. This is really a source of inspiration and power, not just to women, but to men too. It shows what the grassroots can really do. And if it's denied us, we're denied a certain amount of our power. So that's why I put 12 years into putting this book together to put it out. It's 500 pages, it's oversized, but you're right, it's full of inspiration. Just one photograph of a woman standing up in a car speaking to all these men and send chills through your body because you understand viscerally then what these women went through to win the right to vote. Indeed, it really does. And as you so nicely conclude in the whole book, I mean, there's there's lots of chapters where there's lovely conclusions, but in in your uh, the conclusion of the entire book, you mentioned the leading American suffragette, Harriet Stanton Blanche, who was justifiably proud of, a, of American women's achievement. And uh, you quote her as saying, this is the first disenfranchised class in history who, unaided by any political party, won enfranchisement by its own effort alone and achieved the victory without the shedding of a drop of human blood. That's you quoting, Robert, um, quoting Harriet Stanton Blanche. What an amazing achievement. Lady Stanton's daughter and carried on her work to the next generation and saw it through. And that pretty much summarizes why this movement is so important, I think. It was a movement for civil rights and for political liberty that didn't take the lives of their opponents. They went to convert their opponents and to come out with a mutual solution that, as we've seen, has lasted and has a great future ahead. Well, before I turn, uh, we were talking about different kinds of songs and anthems. I'm going to close out when we're done with this interview with it's the Love and Justice uh, anthem that the women in Australia, uh, that they performed uh, within the last couple of years. Well, that'll be how we close out. I want you both to know that. But Kimberly, you had something very specific you would like to add before we close this interview. I just really want to encourage everyone, if you're not registered to vote and you're of the age of 18, please register to vote. It's so important, uh, regardless of your political party, regardless of your beliefs, it's important that your voice be heard. That's what we've all fought so hard for, and it's what we will continue to fight for. Indeed. And Robert Cooney, to conclude? You're here. I, I agree the same thing, and I think that It's not just women candidates, it's also issues that affect women that are a big important step. And even if men are in office, they respond to pressure around issues that they might not know as much about as women do. So it's important to keep backing issues that have specific impact on women and and children's lives as we know it today. Suffrage and literacy go hand in hand for everybody's uh, for everybody. Well, I I want to thank you both, Kimberly Salter, the chair for the the co-chair of the California Women's Suffrage Centennial, and Robert Cooney, author of Winning the Vote: Triumph of the Women's Suffrage Movement. Thank you both for being on the show today, and we'll we'll stay tuned for uh, the next half of the show. Thank you for joining us here as we return to Ask a Leader with the second guest portion here. Welcome back. As I said, L. Beyer, my next guest is the um, co-founder of Peace Love Swap for with the last two years in business. She's a mother of four young boys, has been... um, she owns a, uh, she's, oh, she's running this, sorry, with her partner, Meg Franz. She also owns an online business called NaturalDecorDesign.com. Her company is a Manzanita supplier for florists, event planners, and brides-to-be with accounts all around the world. All of her ventures she conducts from her home. Her swap business offers her children the opportunity to explore uh, all kinds of new enterprises and, and some make some new wholesome choices. And I wanted you to know that uh, town by town, city by city, uh, as we mentioned in the introduction of this whole program, she's helping us reconsider how we market in our community. Elle, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Claudia. It's, um, I'm very excited to be on the show and 
very honored. Oh, as well. please. It's a, the treat is all ours. And for the record, Elle's last name, Buyer, is spelled differently than the word whose concept she's tweaking in the, B, the Peace Love Swap. So um, <laughs> we'll take it from there. So how did Peace Love Swap all begin before we get into the concept? Is there anything well, like, like it anywhere else? Um, <clears throat> actually, no. There's nothing else like it. Um, there's no other company that holds... Um, that produces ongoing baby, kid, and maternity swaps on an ongoing basis and um, offers women and moms and dads to start their own swap under the umbrella of Peace Love Swap to um, basically start their own swap and um, be a part of a large network and um, so that and um, to have a successful swap. Basically, um, how it all started was um, it was started by my partner, Meg Franz, um, she lived in a small town called um, Grass Valley, which she still resides there now. They're up in Northern and California for the uninitiated. Yes, up in Nor- Northern California. It's a, it's a very small town, population 12,000. And um, one day she was dropping her um, unused baby kid and maternity items at um, at a thrift store. And as she was dropping it off there, um, she saw another bag full of baby kid maternity items that another mom had just dropped off uh, probably right before she did. And then she thought to herself, well, wouldn't it be nice um, if all of us moms who are donating our stuff could get together beforehand and maybe exchange our things and see if there's anything we could use and then donate it as a group to a charity or an organization. That way it's a win-win for everybody else. Um, We get some things that we could use, plus on a collaborative basis, we all donate a large chunk of items to a charity. And so um, that is how the idea of Peace Love Swap um, began. And she started a basically a movement in her community. And she, um, you know, started hanging flyers and organized um, an event to um, have at a local gymnastics gym. And um, she hung flyers everywhere and did online some online marketing. And um, she got at her first swap probably about 20 moms. And then um, they all, you know, wanted another one. So she organized another one, and that one had 80 moms. So the word really spread kind of like wildfire, and it just really blossomed. And um, she'd been doing it for about, I would say, nine months um, before I got seriously involved. I, I was online posting my kids' clothes on Craigslist, and actually the same idea came to mind. I thought, man, um, here I am posting probably like, I probably had three to four bags um, full of items that I was actually trying to sell. And then um, I had a couple moms get back to me and they were like, well, I, you know, do you, I only want baby gap. Do you have just baby gap? Can you dig through your items and just pick out all the baby gap items? And and I just had, you know, a couple emails like along those lines. And I was like, oh, this is kind of tedious. I'm like, why can't I just take all my stuff somewhere and um, drop it off and then pick out a few items that I could use and then, you know, that would be really helpful. And then that kind of a light bulb went off on my head and I thought to myself, well, I wonder if there is anything out there. So I just did a Google search for um, swaps, baby swap, uh, baby kid maternity swaps, and I Googled that. And then sure enough, um, Meg's organization, Peace Love Swap, popped up. And I, um, uh, I contacted her, and sure enough, she was coming to my city um, in only two weeks, and it was the first time she was going to do it at a place besides Grass Valley. So I was like, well, I'm definitely going. So I went, and um, I just loved the concept. I mean, it was organized. It was just, um, you know, it was definitely very, very cool. And um, I got, I was really excited because I was able to get rid of get rid of, you know, all my items, but as well, um, in return, get um, quite a few really nice items for my boys. And then the rest of it went to charity. So I was, I was really happy with that. And um, so I, I started talking with her and we exchanged probably, I don't know, lots and lots of emails, bouncing ideas off of each other. And I told her, you know, 
I think, you know, I really want to be a part of this. I want to see this go nationwide, and I want to see every community in America, possibly the world, have a peace love swap. I mean, every community needs one. And I kind of understood the same vision that she had, and we were just basically on the same page with bringing it to, you know, the nation, to the world, you know, and and um, we started developing more, um, just kind of fine-tuning everything, and then we ended up um, creating the company together, and um, and that's where we are now. We created the company together, and with just her and I being swap organizers, then we brought on um, another gal from Sacramento, Heather. She was our first uh, swap organizer uh, besides Meg and I, and then uh, we grew in um, since last year, we grew from three swap organizers to over thirty, and wow. we are in um, over we are in thirty plus cities across the U.S. and we are growing by the day. So, so Meg, um, so so L, we're L buyer with a peace love swap, and that's that is the way to get a hold of the organization to get signed on as an organizer or to locate the um, the swap nearest you. It's www.peace loveswap.com correct yes straight through there and so what we're you're able to accomplish sort of clearing the decks going to a marketplace that is geared toward what you'd like and we're going to talk about uh, expansively about this it's not just about uh, 6x clothes kids it's uh, folks um, we're talking about keeping the waste stream down we're not just sort of discarding things because lots of things we discard we really do think has another bit of life left in it and um and so uh we're we're and we're keeping people's budgets uh manageable and especially in times like this i don't know if that when the economy improves again if you'll see a different um sort of a pattern in peace love swap maybe just more is getting swapped and you know it's hard to say i think yeah i think definitely more will just get swapped but right now i think people are um, having a healthier attitude towards consumption with the economy being down people are really looking at um, green alternatives to um, our lifestyle and just the way that we live in general and i think it will transcend into generations to come because my children are very eco-conscious and they are all under the age of five (laughs) and i think um i think the next generations will be very eco-conscious regardless of how prosperous our economy is um they've just like really learned uh they just have received a different education than um you know my generation and um and it's been on like a mass scale and you know these kids uh they love the swaps i mean they really enjoy them it's a different shopping experience and i think it's a lot more enjoyable shopping experience for them as well and i think they will carry that with them um so l yeah. Let's let's get into because we don't have a ton of time left. Unfortunately, we had to solve all California's suffrage movement questions, and then we didn't give you we didn't give you enough time to cover everything. But we'll do our very best. That so there's there are locales that I want people. to... Well, before we go to the locales, let's go to how a day goes. You have people who sign up, they make a reservation, they buy a ticket online, or they buy a ticket at the door. They bring right. their they bring their gear to the locale. The organizers set up all of the swapping materials, arrange them in some way, and people line up outside. And the first, the first one reserved, the first ticket holder uh, purchased, acquired via various means, is the first one with first dibs on the swap uh, articles. And then uh, they have you have a, a, a list of etiquettes, a do's and don'ts about this. Don't over swap. Don't uh, you know. Um, there's a very there's a sort of a protocol to follow, folks, and uh, that's on the template or that along with the templates on the peacelovesswap.com um, uh, website, and then uh, everybody gets a chance at these things in the order that they've uh, purchased their uh, reservation, and then uh, you may have something left over, as you said, and that can be either donated um, for charity. And this is all about uh, and the money that's used in the reservation tickets that goes those proceeds could go to a fundraiser it could be going to the entrepreneur who is the organizer of that locale it can go many different ways correct correct okay um yes each yes. swap organizer runs their swap 
pretty much with the same template of PCL swap. They may have a few little differences, which that's why we try to direct everybody to the website and make sure they click on their their city event page because it will say, you know, basically tell everybody what you know what's going on with that particular swap. Because sometimes it could be a costume swap, you know, where they're swapping Halloween costumes. Yes. Um, it could be a women's swap where they're just swapping women's clothes. So um, that's the important thing is to go to your local event page and read over, um, you know, the details of that particular swap. Because for the most part, you can expect the same thing from each each piece of swap, but there are, you know, little details that may be a little different. So that's important to be in the know with those details before you attend the swap. And I want to emphasize that the the possibilities for the swap are as as uh, only limited to the entrepreneur's imagination. When we were talking about this interview um, in preparation, uh, Elle and I were exploring there's a, a talent swap where uh, services are um, are swapped between people, but somebody with the IT expertise, somebody with culinary expertise, somebody as a handy person, all these people can put their services there to be swapped as well. And uh and there was a, you've talked about a prom swap in Sacramento. Well, we could have a homecoming swap coming up along with the Halloween swap, folks. We could, and then for the, we were talking about a general campus swap. So maybe along with the three, 30 cities set up around the country, you can envision campuses. Maybe during orientation could have a campus swap where people get to know each other. People get to find out, you know, whose goods are going to last longer with a new owner. <laughs> right, right. And yes. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, we, we did one that was called Swap-A-Palooza, which was the everything swap. I mean, people brought their garden tools that they no longer use, their Great. extras, and, you know, home decor and all that kind of thing. So it really is limitless, and our swap organizers have the option to do um, other swaps if they so desire. And I want for uh, those that are new to this, which is about, I don't know, 99.5% of us, is that the uh, nearest venues to where this broadcast originates in Irvine, California, uh, are Fullerton, Long Beach, and then further out, Manhattan Beach and Norwalk. And uh, I, I'm fancying some uh, some uh, some really boozed out uh, burbs in the west side of L.A. I want to see what those swaps look like. So are you... Well, are, you soliciting some uh, interesting uh, venues elsewhere, or are they they're just coming to you naturally? You don't have to even reach out anymore. Well, it uh, sometimes the venues uh, contact us and say, "Hey, I heard about your event. We'd love to host." Um, we get that too. Um, but our swap organizers they usually go out and scout locations. They scout ideal locations that would work for the particular swap that they are that they are producing. Um, so, you know, a lot of times. Um, what our swap organizers will do will um, actually go out and visit the venue and speak with the owner and and just kind of get an idea to see if like their particular space would work because there are some kind of logistics to you know to to the event and you know there's got to be you know certain things that there um, such as like things for the kids to do if you're doing a baby kid swap there's got to be something like a you know so that ideally it's a gymnastics gym or like an indoor play park or uh -huh. something like that. Um, or outdoors? Has outdoors worked for you, or is it better outdoors inside? Outdoors has worked, yes. We've had them at parks. Um, we've had them at theme parks. We've had them, um, we've had them at farmer's markets. Uh, we've had them, yes, so outdoor locations do work as long as they're, you know, weather permitting. We tend to have outdoor ones, like, during the summer or um, late spring. Okay. Or yeah. Do you have any, are there some new, uh, I've mentioned those ones that are closest to us in Orange County. Are there uh, yet newer uh, venues that are close to us that you want to promote and uh, uh, telegraph from here today? Well, and um, cl the closest one to Irvine is probably, um, you know, Orange, North Orange County, the Fullerton Swap. Um, for the beach, coastal cities, I would say the Manhattan Beach Swap, um, that's a really, uh, um, that one gets a pretty big turnout as far as like for the coastal cities go. Um, Fullerton would be a great one if there's anybody in South Orange County who would want to organize a swap down there. I mean, con they are more than welcome to contact us and we can get one going down there. That would be great to have one down there as well as um, maybe n nearer towards San Diego. We don't have a swap down there just okay. yet. So, I mean, we would definitely love to see more down in uh, Southern California. 
So um, what we do do is um, uh, for each swap organizer, especially in the real metro areas, we don't um, organize a piece of swap any any closer than a 10-mile radius in the in the metro areas because um, we like to keep them, you know, special and, you know, people only have so much to really swap, you know, once they get rid of their items. It takes, you know, a couple months for them to build up, you know, you know, another supply to swap. So that's why we have them on, we have them on a regular basis, but we have them usually a month or two or three months apart from each other. Absolutely fine. So um, the organizers have to, is there's not really, the capital they put up is for uh, becoming sort of chartered with the organization, and then uh, up, then they have to make sure they uh, they have the rest is really time and effort to fan out and get a, a sort of a a, a kind of a, a, a what I want a critical mass of swappers. I guess that's the next step. That's the kind of capital that it takes then to to pull off their first event. Correct. Well, the capital that it takes is very minimal. I mean, they all they do is pay for um, a license fee, which is $29 a month. And then that $29 a month gets them their own web page that they can update, um, and they can sell advertising space on their web page. So, um, so their web page can always be making money. Um, they, have, they have sponsors and vendors, uh, you know, to sell space to at their events, plus the admission fees. So um, their startup cost is very minimal for, especially for their return, for their um, potential return. And, and um, as far as like supplies, um, signs, and clothing racks, and all those sorts of things, um, the cost is very, very minimal. I mean, we have um, swap organizers that make their own signs um, for racks. Uh, we have um, different sponsorship programs and that sort of thing. So. So actually, it's it's a very low, low startup cost business. Fine, and um, I wanted to uh, remind others. It's been a, I haven't given you your due here, Ellen. L. Buyer is the co-founder of Peace Love Swap, an alternative to traditional consumerism, and she is the co-founder, as I say, of this organization, uh, giving everybody a chance to think big about all the um, the items they have and the items they'd like to see uh, from others in a uh, very alternative kind of a setting. Um, and so can, we have like one half of a minute left. You could just say a little bit about the kind of examples of sponsors and vendors, not to plug any any particular firm, but to give people an idea what you mean by that. Well, um, a lot of our sponsors and vendors are swappers themselves who have home businesses. So Mary Kay representatives, Avon representatives. Um, we have uh, oh. Uh, there's a, this juice one, um, Melaleuca, you know, all those different, you know, home, home-based businesses that um, moms, a lot of moms like to run on their own. We have photographers. Um, we have, I mean, you name it, we've probably had it <laughs> at an event. Um, face painting specialists, uh, massage therapists, um, and they're mostly the moms who swap. So um, it's really great exposure for local businesses as Very well. Very good. Very good. Well, everybody, as I said before, that your imagination is the only limit to where you can take your own local peace love swap venture and be looking out on that website www.peaceloveswap.com for uh, the, getting started with this alternative to consumerism and. I want to thank you, El Buyer, for being on my show today, and I wish you every success. And we'll uh, maybe there'll be some other kind of a theme you want to bring to us in a, an update in a year or so. Okay. All right. Thanks, Claudia. I Thanks appreciate a lot. It. Well, that concludes our show. We have next uh, speaking of peace and loving and swapping, George Rosales, and uh, stay tuned for him. We'll see you next week with some more lovely guests handpicked with you, listener in mind. Mm-hmm.